Amazing. Well, good morning, everyone. It's nice to see some new faces here as well. What we do for our new visitors is we get you to come up and do a little dance for us. And Oh, my gosh. Imagine, imagine that. <laughs> no, it's good to have you here. If you're brand new or if you've been coming for years, it is great to see you. You are welcome in this place. It's a... Uh, yeah. It's a funny old morning, isn't it, when you come to church and it's not quite how you expect it to be, but even just hearing the voices during that middle song, wow, the Holy Spirit was here. Even without a band, you could feel the presence of God in this place, and that is amazing. So, yeah, well done for for not kind of getting hit by that barrier of, you know, listening to a track or not having people on the platform. It's just great to enter into the presence of God. We don't need... Uh, all of that stuff. It's just about us and God. So amazing. Good stuff. So today we are going to continue with our series, The Storyteller. Um, We are on the home straight now. So we've been talking for a few weeks, looking at the parables that Jesus told, some of the parables, these great stories that he shared throughout his life and ministry. So as we head down this home straight, we're going to look at uh, a trilogy of parables that come in quick succession um, that cover the subject lost and found. Last week, we talked about the Good Samaritan, which by all accounts is a very well-known parable, but I think within this trilogy, we find probably the most well-known parable. If you were to do a survey on the streets and say, tell me a parable of Jesus, I think that they would name one of these, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. So what we're going to do is we're going to split this into two weeks. This week we're going to look at the sheep and the coin, and then next week we're going to look at the prodigal son. I think that's fair. If you look at how they sit in scripture, they are kind of equal, or even the prodigal son is even a bit more, a bit longer than the other two. So that's how we're going to split it over the next two weeks. Uh, Why don't we pray? Why don't we pray? Father God, we thank you that you are in this place, that you are uh, ready to meet with us, and I pray that each and every one of us will open our hearts, our spirits, our minds, ready to hear from you this morning. So we want to engage with you today. We want to meet with you today in a real and tangible and transformative way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So if you have got Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 15. If you've not, it will come up on the screen, I am sure. Okay, so we're reading from verse 1 of chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost One of them does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? 
Then when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God, before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What I love about these first two stories within this, this trilogy, if you like, is just kind of how, uh, how short and simple they are, how succinct these stories that Jesus are telling are. But even though they are short, even though they are simple, they've still got mileage. They've still got mileage. There's still relevance to us here in 2021. And there's some gold that we can take away from these stories. And I think the the danger is that because they're short and because they're well-known, that we could almost race through them because we know what's going to happen. We know how the story goes. And so as soon as we start to read this in our Bibles and we get to the heading that says the story of the lost sheep, we're like, ah, yes, I know how this goes. Uh, Shepherd loses sheep, looks for sheep, finds sheep. Onto the next verse. Oh, the woman loses a coin, looks for the coin. We know how it goes, don't we? And so we almost skim read these verses that we have read this morning. And as we said last week, there's a danger when you, uh, when you just kind of race over scripture that you miss some of the detail, that you miss some of what it is that Jesus is trying to put across to us when he tells these stories. The importance, in fact, not just of these parables, but of all of Jesus's parables is not just to hear the words of Jesus, but to hear and get into the world of Jesus. As we've said throughout this series, and whenever it is that you approach the scriptures, context is key. The context of the story is key. What is going on around Jesus at this time? Where is he? Who is he with? What is he telling this story in response to? Context is so important. So let's just look at verses 1 and 2 and get the context for these two stories, or in fact, for the, for the full three. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So that is the context for these stories. What we're seeing here is Jesus having a meal. He loves to eat. He loves to eat. I think he's very relatable in that sense. He's having a meal. And actually, if you were to flip back in your Bibles to the previous chapter, what you'd see is Jesus having another meal. At the start of chapter 14, Jesus is having a meal. He's actually having a meal in the house of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And in that setting, the kind of undesirables, the so-called sinners, as we've read in these scriptures, they're on the kind of fringes, on the outskirts looking in. But what we see in this is a kind of flip of what happened in the previous chapter. And so now Jesus is, is not only having a meal, but I think he's hosting a meal. And yet instead of inviting the the who's who of the town, instead of inviting the religious leaders and the Pharisees to come and eat with him, he's decided he's chosen to invite these sinners. 
He's called around him to his house for a meal with him, the riffraff, the undesirables, the people that others don't want to be associated with, and he's gathered them. I mean, this is classic Jesus, isn't it? I have no doubt that as he was going on this journey that led up to this meal, that as he approached this new town, he would have had dinner invites. Because the Pharisees and the religious leaders and and all of those types of people, they love to be seen to be doing the right thing. And so they will have heard about Jesus and about the attention that he was getting. And even if they didn't necessarily agree with him or they thought that he was controversial or they hated him even, they would have wanted to be seen to be hosting him because that was the right thing for them to do. And so I have no doubt that as he approached uh, this moment in scripture, he will have had some dinner invites from the VIPs of the town. And yet instead, he rejects their invites and he hosts his meal of his own, inviting the riffraff, the marginalized, those, those who were looked down on. He was fraternizing with with people outside of the the synagogue community, the, the kind of clique of church, if you like. And the reality is that to host a meal in the time of Jesus, it was actually quite a big deal. They didn't just nip to KFC and get a bargain bucket and have a 15 minute in and out meal and thank you very much, see you later. To host a meal in those days was a big deal because it was an occasion. You would gather around and there would be ritual of cleaning and there would be conversation. And they, I love how it says they recline at the table. There's this kind of laid back, chilled out kind of atmosphere when it comes to having a meal in the time of Jesus. And so they would relax and they would enjoy it and they would take a long time over dinner, hours even, sharing food, sharing stories, doing life together, getting to know one another. So to be invited to a meal, to be hosted in someone's house was to be welcomed. And look at what the the Pharisees were grumbling about. This man receives sinners. They were grumbling about this. So when you receive someone into your home, it's not just a a welcoming act, it's an accepting act. When someone comes into your home at your invitation, you are accepting them for who they are. And so that's super powerful as we approach these stories. Jesus is hosting this meal. And so the context of what leads into uh, these three stories is that the Pharisees and the religious leaders are caught grumbling about Jesus. They're having a right old moan about the fact that they didn't score an invite, but instead he's chosen these down and out people. And so that's the context or the comment that comes from the, the Pharisees that leads into these parables. And so in response to hearing the murmurings that are going on, he responds with a story. Well, three stories. And it's interesting that he chooses to tell three stories, isn't it? Because they're not unrelated stories that each have their own individual points. These are three stories with the same purpose, the same message, the same point. It's almost as if Jesus tells this first story and he says, to himself, 
oh, well, perhaps they won't have got what I meant in that story. So let me just put it another way. And so he tells a second story. And then he's like, well, these guys are probably a little bit dim. They don't get what's going on as I've been doing my ministry over the past uh, years. So maybe I'll just tell it a third way in the hopes that maybe then they'll grasp the point. They'll get what it is that I'm saying. And so these three stories are a single answer, a single response to a specific situation. But in each of these three stories, three things happen. Something is lost, the, the, the loss leads to a search, and then there is joy in the finding. So that's what we're going to work through this morning. Something is lost. Have you ever lost something before? That utter panic when you realize that you have lost whatever it is, your phone, your keys, your wallet. I don't know, that, just, just a horrible feeling, isn't it? And I know this feeling quite well. When I turned 21, my lovely wife, knowing that I, I'm a jewelry person, I like necklaces, chains, rings, all of that stuff. And so knowing that, Ruth bought me a ring for my 21st birthday. And I'm not sure how long I had that ring, but I remember the day I lost the ring. It was a lovely sunny day. We'd gone to the Lake District with some friends. And of course, we went for a swim in the lake. It was hot. I think you can tell where this is going. It wasn't long in the lake before I realized that the ring was no longer on my finger. So I can only assume it is somewhere at the bottom of Lake Coniston. Well, it's quite a big lake. And although I hadn't swum in all of it, you know, it was moving constantly and the floor, if you've ever been in it, is a bit squelchy. And I mean, I spent a good hour looking for this ring while everyone else was off having fun because of how guilty I felt, because of that shame, that panic about losing the ring. Needless to say, I did not find said ring. But it's okay because you can fast forward, uh, I'm not sure, a few months, a uh, year, I don't know. I'm not, not good at timings on my feet. But then we got engaged. I proposed to Ruth. If you want to hear that story, you can ask her after the service. Um, but shortly after I'd proposed to Ruth, she proposed to me. That was a safe question. She knew what I was going to say because I'd already asked her. But we're in the cinema and we're watching a movie. I can't remember what it was. But I reached into the popcorn and pulled out a ring, and on the ring had a tag, and it said, will you marry me? And of course, I said, yes. We already knew that was going to happen. I slipped the ring on my finger, and that was that. I had a brand new ring. And of course, I'd learned from my mistakes. And so I'd found myself maybe a year later, well, no, it will have been months later, um, on a lad's holiday. We were in Wales. We were having a great time. The sun was shining. We'd gone to the beach. I had learned from my mistake. So we were going to go swimming, and I was like, I'm not losing another ring. So I took my ring off. I put it in my camera case. I had a little zippy-up case for my uh, digital camera. I wasn't using phones in those days. Um, and so I put it in there for safekeeping, and off we go into the sea. And we're having a great time. But one of my friends, he decided he didn't want to get wet. So he was just chilling out on the beach. And we thought, oh, it'd be great to get some photos of us in the sea. I think you can tell where this is going. And so I called my friend, and at this point, I was having so much fun, I'd forgotten I'd put my ring in my camera case for safekeeping. And so I said, grab my camera, let's get some pictures. And he didn't know, and I'd forgotten. And so we're taking pictures, and we're having a great time, and it was only after we got out of the sea, and we're packing everything up, and I'm like, where's my ring? Where have I put it? 
oh yeah, I put it in my camera case. And then I go in and, it, and it's not there. And I'm like, why isn't it here? This is where I, oh, my friend got my camera out of the case, stood on a beach. I mean, have you ever tried to look for a, a ring on a beach? Well, I didn't bother looking that time because I knew there was no hope. It could have been anywhere. So I lost yet another ring. I don't know why Ruth allowed me to have a wedding ring, but I can promise you this is the, this is, <laughs> I got two now, <laughs> just in case. This is the same one we got married with, and I would love to say that I have never lost this ring. However, I have. It was a few years later after we got married and we were in a ball pit of all places having fun with the kids. And at this time I recognized when it came off my finger. I jumped into the ball pit. I felt it slip off my finger. It was in slow motion. It flew through the air and landed in the balls. And well, it was quite a large ball pit, maybe the size of this stage. And well, I mean, again, me and my friend, we looked for about half an hour. No joy. I was like, I mean, this is a needle in a haystack situation, isn't it? Just in case it was going to show up, I chatted to a member of staff. I was like, listen, I've lost my ring. It's my wedding ring. I've lost two rings before this. She's going to kill me. If it shows up, here's my number. Well, he thought on the off chance, I'll just go and have a quick look. And I'm not kidding. It was within one minute of him getting in the ball pit that he found the ring. I was like, praise Jesus. I am not getting a divorce after one year of marriage. But I know that feeling of losing something. And if you do too, you can just know that panic, that sense of loss, that sense of dread when this thing happens. And so Jesus shares, shares three stories about these lost things. And just as a side note, it's interesting to note that actually the characters from these stories are actually people that are on the margins of society, much like the people who were his guests at the dinner table, the, the heroes, if you like, of these stories. One was a shepherd. Now, the, the, being a shepherd was like the lowest of the low profession you could be in. They were just like disregarded as humans. And so Jesus chose to use a shepherd to tell his story. And then the woman with a coin, well, women, and this is not me being sexist, this is back in biblical times, were seen as lesser people than the men. And they wouldn't have had access to their own money in that sense. So reading this story about a woman who has 10 valuable coins, well, we can only assume she was a widow. And so widows were, were just forgotten about in those days. So Jesus intentionally chooses people who are looked down on, who are forgotten about, and he puts them in this place of honor within this story. I just think that's really nice. And so the shepherd, the shepherd has a hundred sheep and one sheep goes missing. Unlike my ring, where there was only one of them or three, if you count all of the, the stories, uh, they, they were super precious to me, but the sheep, there was a hundred. And so one went missing and one went wandering off. And I don't know about you, but if that was me, I would say that 1% is probably acceptable we will take that loss and just be thankful we've still got 99 sheep in the herd. And then the woman with 10 coins. 
I mean, these are valuable coins. It's not like she's got a pound in her pocket. Each coin is worth about a day's wages. So these are valuable coins. And she loses one, and, and so she sweeps the house for it. She's flipping the house upside down. The couch cushions are off. The books are off the shelves. All the drawers are open to find this one coin. It is chaos. But she's still got nine coins. She's still got nine of ten. So maybe that one that she's lost. Maybe it's still okay. I think I'd probably be okay with it. After, you know, maybe a while of looking, I'd be okay with it. But Jesus isn't. Jesus isn't, and he's not okay with losing one. Jesus goes looking for the one. Jesus goes looking for the one. And he makes it clear that these stories are not stories about things. They're not about sheep. They're not about coins. They're about people. So we need to remember the context that we are in for these stories, that he is actually responding to the grumbling of the Pharisees, that he is hanging out with these undesirables, these sinners, these tax collectors, these prostitutes. They are grumbling about the people that he is hanging out with. Something is lost. These people he is eating with are lost. We are lost. But that's okay because after something is lost, our point two says that the loss leads to a search. You see, the shepherd chooses to leave the 99 to go and find the one. And the woman throws her house upside down to find that coin that she is missing because something was lost, but now begins the journey to find it. So let's think about the shepherd for a moment. He's in charge of a hundred sheep, a hundred incredibly stupid sheep. And one of them has gone and got itself missing. It's separated from the herd and it's disappeared. But there are still 99 sheep. We've established that. There are still 99 sheep that are safe and sound and in his care. And, and that's not too bad, I would say. But he chooses to leave the 99 sheep and to go and find this one. Now you've got to ask yourself, as he's looking for the one, well, who's looking after the 99 now? We almost skim read this passage and, say, and just kind of assume that there's some other person looking after the 99 sheep, but I don't think that's the case. I think he's choosing to take the risk of leaving these 99 to go and to find the one. There is no guarantee that on this journey, on this search, he will indeed find the one. And now he's risking the other 99 as well. It makes no sense. And that is the way that God operates. And that's why I love these stories because it's illogical to leave the 99 and to go and find the one. It doesn't make sense. It's bonkers. If you were to just be sensible about this for a moment, one has gone missing. It's okay, there's still 99. Why risk all of this to go and look for the one with no guarantees that you'll find it? But that is just how Jesus acts. He's illogical. Is that irreverent to say? He's illogical. Because when it comes to people, God is illogical. He doesn't play it safe. 
He's not willing to accept the loss. He's not just going to shrug his shoulders and say, ah, it's all right, I still got 99, it's all good, it's all good. These stories aren't about sheep or coins, they're about people and Jesus is responding to this unasked question by the Pharisees and the religious leaders, why do you hang out with these types of people? Why are you spending time with these sinners? Why are you putting your energy into these people? And his answer is because they are of infinite value to me. Because they are of infinite value to me. In Luke 19 verse 10 it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Each and every one of these sinners at his table. Each of one of these outcasts, these down and outs, these undesirable people is of infinite value to God. You are of infinite value to God. And we know this because the value of something is, is demonstrated, is revealed by the manner of the search. The value of something is revealed in the manner of the search. And actually, in this story that we're hearing, particularly with the shepherd, it's illogical. It makes no sense. It's outrageous that you would make that decision. But Jesus wasn't willing to take the loss. He humbled himself. He came down from heaven to earth. He clothed himself in humanity, giving up all of his, his godly nature in order to illogically and outrageously come after the one to find me, to find you, to pay the price. There is no one in, in this room. In fact, there is no one in the world who is not of infinite value to God. We are all valued by him and we might not know these people they might mean nothing to us but God he would die for them he would make the illogical decision to go looking for them you know you hear people say that oh I found Jesus that's a phrase that sometimes we use when you know we, we come to I found Jesus but I would say the reality is that, that Jesus found you because it was him that made that outrageous, illogical decision to come looking for me and for you. Something was lost and the loss leads to a search and then finally there is joy in the finding. There is joy in the finding because when the man finds his lost sheep and, and the woman finds her lost corn and as a coin, and as we'll see next week as the father finds his, his lost son, the pattern is the same. When the lost thing is found, they gather people round them to celebrate, to celebrate. Now, I'm not going to lie, I've always found this in these stories a little bit confusing. If, if my neighbor came to me and said, oh, come and celebrate with me. I'm having a party because I lost a tenner down my sofa and now I found it. I'd be like, okay, good for you. 
woohoo, I'll have a drink and say cheers. And I did, it baffles me a little bit as to, as to why that was in the story. But the reality is, and I think the point that Jesus is making in telling this story is it comes down to value. It comes down to value because we have our biggest celebrations about the things that value to us the most. Yesterday, we celebrated my wife's 40th birthday. We had a party. We threw a celebration. It wasn't as big as perhaps we'd hoped because of all the restrictions and what have you, but we celebrated nonetheless. We gathered people around us to celebrate because Ruth is someone I value and someone that our family and friends value, and so we celebrated her. We gather people around us, don't we, at at weddings and birthdays and anniversaries to, to celebrate, even at funerals, to celebrate people's lives, to celebrate because there is incredible value in people. But according to Jesus, look at what gets the champagne flowing in heaven, in God's kingdom. Look at where the rejoicing happens as we read these stories. In verse 7, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. And then in verse 10, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. He's telling us a story of a a crazy shepherd, a crazy shepherd who, who cares so much for his flock, even for the one that he's willing to risk the 99, to make that bonkers, outrageous, illogical decision to go looking for the one. And he's painting a picture of this woman who who illogically turns her house upside down, chasing after, looking for, searching for the one coin. That is who our God is. That is how much he loves each and every one of us. That is how much he wants to know us how much he wants to forgive us, how much he wants to restore us. He sees our worth. He sees how valuable we are. And so he comes looking for each and every one of us. He comes looking to find us because we were lost. But that loss led to an all-out search, a search where he left his home. He left the comfort and the royalty and the majesty of everything that he knew. He left all of that behind to come down to earth in this search, a search that seems outrageous. It seems illogical. Why would God give up his godliness to come and find just us, just us? Well, I can just create some new humans if I want. I'll just sack these ones off, write them off. They're not worth my time or my energy. It's illogical, but he chooses to to give up all of that, to come down to earth in this all-out search to find us. And then when he finds us, as it said in those two verses I just read, when he finds us, there is joy, this abundant, extravagant joy. We were once lost and now 
we are found.